Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you this evening to take your Bible and join me in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to, I think, have time tonight to examine two texts, one in chapter 2 and the other in chapter 3. And the text that I would read with you in preparation for our study is in chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 17. I actually would argue that verse 15 is probably the key verse of the, of the book that encapsules what 2 Thessalonians is all about. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, Paul writes, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. If you look at the opening page of your notes this evening, Second Thessalonians, I do think we could summarize in terms of its theme, remain faithful, stand firm. And in my own notes, I've written beside that, verse 15 of chapter 2, believing it does encapsulate quite well the theme of the book. We're going to see the author is the Apostle Paul. We're moving toward the end of his letters now, but still have several to go. Date of writing, as is the case with First Thessalonians, somewhere around A.D. 50 to 52, with the possible exception of Galatians, we will see that this is the first, second, or third epistle that was written by Paul, hence the early epistles, sometimes called the eschatological epistles. Two reasons for writing. It's a very short book of just three chapters. One, to correct some misunderstandings in the area of eschatology. So it has a common theme in this regard to First Thessalonians. There he was correcting some uh, misunderstandings. Things still didn't get straightened out with the writing of First Thessalonians, even even uh, and apparently based upon chapter two, uh, verse one and two, even a false letter was now being circulated, possibly in Paul's name. So there's still some things that he has to straighten out. In particular, what is the nature of the day of the Lord? And secondly, what about this person that he calls the man of lawlessness? Again, in my notes, I've also written the word Antichrist, because what Paul calls the man of lawlessness and what John in Revelation calls the beast out of the sea, we know popularly as the Antichrist, that term appearing only in 1 John chapter 2 and 4 and also in 2 John verse 7. Well, because there is a misunderstanding in the area of theology, there's also a misunderstanding in the area of everyday practical living. So secondly, he writes to correct disorderliness in the church that again is related to their false theology and in particular to their misunderstanding of eschatology. If you look at page 2. I've given you a structural chart, Second Thessalonians, Christ's return, our 
proper response. And again, thematically, I think we could argue that the key verse is 2.15. The theme is, in light of his certain coming again, in light of the fact that there is coming one called the man of lawlessness who will lead the world astray and will set himself up as God, in light of the fact that there's going to be a time of increased persecution when uh, you can't be certain, it may be in your life, it may be a thousand years from now, whatever, you remain faithful And you stand firm in the truth of the gospel that was given to you by us when we came and evangelized your city. Chapter 1, then, is a commendation. Why are you suffering? Well, you can have peace amidst persecution. Why? Because the Lord knows what's going on. Hence, the thrust of chapter 1 is comfort. Chapter 2 is an explanation of the prophecy concerning the man of lawlessness. Question, when will the end occur, when will occur, what will occur in the end? Well, there'll be a battle. As there is today, it will just simply be escalating lawlessness versus faithfulness. Indeed, the day of the Lord is in the future, and here he gives a word of correction. Then thirdly, there's a clarification regarding certain responses to this truth. What do I or how do I respond in the meantime? Well, here's a great phrase that ought to be true for all Christians. We work while waiting. In many ways, that summarizes what the Christian life is all about. We work and we wait for the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. We wait for him, but we work for him. We wait for him, we work for him. And we don't quit working until either, one, we die, or two, he comes again to receive us. And so don't grow weary in doing good. And here he gives a word of challenge. So there's a beautiful balance. You see in that last line, there's a word of comfort, there's a word of correction, and also there is a wonderful word of challenge. Now look with me at page three and we'll hit the background issues pretty quickly because they're not very complex when it comes to this book. Again, in chapter one, verse one, we are told that Paul is the author of the letter. Uh, interestingly, it has been challenged by some and is more debated than first Thessalonians because very few have ever questioned first Thessalonians. You say, well, why do they question it? Well, it's the typical kind of things. Letter A, there are some alleged differences between first and second Thessalonians that have caused some to reject it. For example, some say they have different eschatologies. Christ's return is imminent in first Thessalonians, but not in second Thessalonians. There he is saying, this must happen, this must happen, this must happen, this must happen. Therefore, there's a difference there. But I would quite uh, readily argue, if you read both letters and read them carefully, and understand what the arguments are. There's really a similarity in style. There's a similarity in thought, theme, and theology. In many ways, Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians marvelously complements what he has already said in First Thessalonians. And furthermore, First Thessalonians chapter four is looking very intentionally at the issue of the rapture. Second Thessalonians chapter two is looking at the eschatological day of the Lord, and in particular. The revelation of this man that he calls the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who's going to set himself up in a temple and profess and proclaim that he is God. And so there's a different issue altogether that's being addressed in Second Thessalonians. In many ways, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is a further explanation of First Thessalonians chapter 5, which also deals with the theme of the day of the Lord. And so, again, I don't see these issues at all to be uh, contradictory, but rather complementary. So suggested discrepancies, in my judgment, are not substantial. And we, therefore, can confidently affirm that Paul is indeed the author of Second Thessalonians. This was never, ever debated in the early church and only by a few scholars in the modern era. Background. Somehow unknown to us. 
Paul heard disturbing news of happenings at the church at Thessalonica, and therefore he wrote 2 Thessalonians. This letter was penned shortly after 1 Thessalonians, most likely within a year to 18 months. The condition of the church is much the same in both epistles. And I give you a number of verses there that you can compare to see that. And so this letter, like its sister, was written from Corinth on Paul's second missionary journey, which is recorded for us in Acts 18.23 through chapter 21 and verse 17. Now, this is also just a minor point of interest, but just so that you know some of the issues that are raised by scholars. There is some debate as to which epistle came first. You say, well, you, 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 let's look at the preface. It says the second epistle of Paul to the apostle to the, uh, of the, uh, the Paul, the apostle to the Thessalonians. Yes, but you all need to know that the titles that you find at the top of your Bible, they're not in the original manuscripts. And so you have to start with chapter one, verse one. And actually, back then, there were no chapters or verses either. So you start with the beginning of the book. And some scholars have said, well, actually, believe it or not, they're out of order. And second Thessalonians actually came before first Thessalonians. But the verse I just read a moment ago, 215, you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And that would seem to basically sell the issue that 1 Thessalonians did precede 2 Thessalonians and that indeed in 2 Thessalonians he is referring already to the existence of the first letter. But again, some people have to do something with their time, so they debate issues like that. We'll just take it as the church has always believed it and feel like, you know, we've got pretty good reason for doing so. Date and place, again, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, it's associated with 1 Thessalonians. It's associated with the city of Corinth. Second missionary journey. Best dates, A.D. 50 to 52. In fact, this is one area where even most liberal scholars agree, and you seldom find anyone from any theological persuasion that would date the books of First and Second Thessalonians other than in A.D. 50 to 52. Now, why did he write? Well, I gave you the two reasons a moment ago. Let's expand them out just a bit. Letter A. The first was to correct some misunderstandings regarding the day of the Lord, a day of future eschatological judgment. Some false teachers produced spurious information to the effect that Paul had said the day of the Lord was already present. In fact, just for a moment, listen to what he says, or look with me at chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, Either by spirit, perhaps uh, these teachers were claiming to have a unique uh, communication and a unique spiritual endowment. So whether it comes by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you. And then off he goes into argument saying that day will not come until the following things begin to transpire. And so they were saying evidently, oh, persecution, trouble, the day of the Lord is here. Paul says, no, I didn't teach that. And even if someone says, I've got a new word from the Lord. No, what I taught you the first time was correct, which in my judgment, by the way, Rapture is in chapter 4, the day of the Lord is in chapter 5, the rapture happens before the day of the Lord, hence I'm pre-tribulational. And see, there's the argument. They're being told you're in the day of the Lord. Paul had told them they weren't going to go through the day of the Lord because they would be raptured out before it. 
Now they're confused. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't let people shake you up about our gathering together to be with him. And then he goes into a discussion there in verse 3 and following about what will have to happen before uh, that particular day will come. And I believe he argues uh, both in verse 1. Uh, And also, even in verse 6 and 7, that the church will be removed and taken out. Hence, again, it's perfectly consistent with what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 in my own judgment. All right. But because the church was undergoing some persecution, the fact that they were in the day of the Lord appeared to be a logical deduction. Paul addresses this in 2, 1 through 12. Then letter B. Paul also wrote to correct disorderliness in the church. Some reason that they should leave their jobs, quit working. Uh, I guess get in a white coat or a white uh, baptismal robe, go up in the mountain and wait because the Lord's coming was so near. And Paul says, no, that is not the way God works. You work and, and wait. You don't wait and sit on your back end and do nothing. So he writes to correct this unwise and, yes, irresponsible behavior. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Some basic features then of the book. Quickly, Second Thessalonians is much like First Thessalonians. There are some features, though, that make them different. A. In 1 Thessalonians, the emphasis is on the coming of the Lord in the air for his saints. In 2 Thessalonians, it's on the coming of the Lord with the saints to the earth. Letter B, in 1 Thessalonians, the coming of Christ stands out. In 2 Thessalonians, it is the coming of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, that stands out. In 1 Thessalonians, there is much said about comfort. In 2 Thessalonians, there's much to do with correction. And so I've given you a comparative chart Top of page five, that I think lays out for us pretty well what uh, the two letters are emphasizing. And it's good for us to see the contrast. First of all, First Thessalonians describes how the Thessalonians received the word of God. Second Thessalonians says, hey, guys, you're doing well. You're progressing in faith and love and patience. Secondly, First uh, Thessalonians teaches about the imminency of the Lord's return, the rapture. Second Thessalonians corrects misunderstandings about that event. Thirdly, 1 Thessalonians comforts and encourages the saints. 2 Thessalonians assures coming judgment upon Christ's enemies. 1 Thessalonians speaks a great deal about the church. 2 Thessalonians is concerned about Satan, the Antichrist, and the system of the world that stands against Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, the outstanding eschatological passage is, and there's a typo I just caught uh, today, It's in chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. So add another one. 413 through 511. 413 through 18, the rapture of the church. 51 through 11, the day of the Lord. Whereas in 2 Thessalonians, you have a further description for the most part about uh, the day of the Lord in chapter 2, 1 through 12. Though again, I think there are intimations of a pre-tribulational rapture, both in verse 1 and also in verse 6 and verse 7 as well. And so, again, a general outline, a pastoral word of comfort and commendation. There's chapter 1. A prophetic word of caution and correction. There's chapter 2. And a practical word of command and clarification that you find in chapter 3. And so let's take a paragraph from the last two chapters. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, taking a stand for the Lord. And then chapter 2, uh, or chapter 3, verse 6 through 18, how do you deal with troublemakers? And actually, I think I'll enjoy that one more. So we'll get to that one as quickly as we can. But, Taking a stand for the Lord. Why is it that you and I, in the midst of persecution, 
in the midst of opposition, in the midst of suffering, why is it that you and I should still stand firm and take a stand for the Lord? Well, he provides four reasons for us in these verses. Number one, because he chose you for salvation. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, we could spend the rest of the night on that one verse alone. We'll just hit the high points. First of all, he chose you for salvation, yes. And the motive was divine love. We are bound. We are obligated to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. What's the next phrase? Beloved by the Lord. And by the way, the word beloved is actually a verbal form. It's in the perfect tense, which means there was a time in the past when God set his love on his people and that love for his people continues into the present and as far as you want to look into the future. And so God loved us. The motive for our salvation was divine love. But secondly, the means of our salvation was the work of the Spirit. He says, because God from the beginning chose you For salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. Now, because of the theology that's in there, let me go ahead and point out the third uh, uh, aspect of our choosing for salvation was the manner. Yes, the means was the work of the Spirit. But the manner was belief in the truth. Now, let's begin. He says there that he what? Loved us. And he, because he loved us, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. In other words, does the Bible have, as we've seen previously in it, a doctrine of election? Yes, it does. Does the Bible teach a doctrine of predestination? Yes, it does. Does the Bible teach a doctrine of foreknowledge and foreordination? Yes, it does. Don't act like it's not there. Don't put your hand over your eyes and pretend it's not in the Scriptures. It is clear as the bell. And when did he do this choosing? Before you ever even were even a little tadpole. This was done when? From the beginning. I think the thrust of it is before time even began, God chose you for salvation. Furthermore, to show you, now just hang with me, don't you have a stroke before I'm through with this verse. Just to show you how little you had to do with it. The next phrase says, and he did all this through the setting apart or the sanctifying ministry of the Spirit. Now, that's perfectly consistent with what we read, for example, in John chapter 6, where the Bible says no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draw him. So regardless of where you stand on the spectrum of whether you are big on free will or big on predestination, whatever you do and wherever you stand, you must acknowledge clearly that your salvation, as far as its initiation, you had nothing to do with it. I used to, when I was a little boy, remember that our church was involved with Southern Baptists in a revival emphasis that we put on our car a bumper sticker that said, I found it. And I think what it meant was, I found it, salvation, I found him, Jesus. But here's the deal. You didn't find anything. You weren't even looking for him. There's none who doeth right, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. No, God chose you before time began. 
And God came looking for you through the setting apart, sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you say, so I guess I'm just passive, just kind of standing here or lying there and God zapped you one day and, uh, you know, presto, uh, bango, I'm in the kingdom. Well, no, I, I need to read the rest of the verse. By what? Belief in the truth. Question. Does anyone get into the family of God who does not believe the truth? No. Is believing the truth something you do? Yes. Is it something you must do? Yes. So you said, well, wait a minute now. Am I saved by the setting apart ministry of the Spirit or am I saved by believing the truth? Yes. It is all of that. The hyper-Calvinists are wrong. When they basically say God just absolutely overwhelms your will, and in essence, they don't really say it this way, but sometimes it almost comes out like this, God just saves you against yourself. No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. He sets your will free so that you joyfully and willingly embrace the truth of the gospel. It is a sovereign act of God. It, is in, it entails human responsibility, and it's an unfathomable mystery that we will never fully understand this side of heaven. I've said it before. I'll probably say it 15,000 times over the next 20 or 25 years as we live here in Wake Forest, God being so good. I take an adamant stand against anything that questions or chips away at the sovereignty of God. I also stand adamantly against anything that will lessen your passion and your zeal for missions and evangelism. I understand that from beginning to end, salvation is the work of God. I also understand that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and they are able to do so through the sanctifying, setting apart ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, we need to move on, and we'll never get to the next text. Number two, he also called you for greatness, verse 14, to which he called you. There's God's initiative again. By what? Our gospel. There's human responsibility again. For the obtaining what? Of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very simply, you are called by the gospel. No one is saved apart from the gospel. No one can be saved without believing the gospel. And yet God did not just save you to take you to heaven when you die. God saved you for his glory. So you're called to greatness. I don't know any other way you could describe being saved for the glory of God. But then thirdly, he committed to you his truth. And here's the key verse. Verse 15, do not move away from the truth. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. It's an imperative, a present tense imperative. Continually stand fast and another present tense, hold, grab, uh, grasp, uh, tightly hang on to the traditions, the teachings which you were taught, whether they came by word, when I'm there talking to you directly, or by our epistle. Hence, I think he's talking about First Thessalonians. So God gave you his truth. So because you have the truth of the gospel, don't you move away from it. You stand where you need to stand. But secondly, don't you let go of it as well. You hang on and you hold on tightly to the teachings which came to you, whether by word or our letter or epistle. He committed to you his truth. Then fourthly, he comforts your heart. That's why we take a stand for him. First of all, in verse 16, he comforts us with love and hope. Verse 16. Now, may our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Did you see that phrase in verse 14? Now you see the phrase again here in verse 16. You saw the word Lord in verse 13. He's very Christocentric, very Christ-centered in the way he unwraps all of this argument. In fact, you think that's good. You find the word Lord again in verse 1, the word Lord again in verse 3, the word Lord again in verse 4, the word Lord again in verse 5. I'm in chapter 3 now. The word Lord, praise Lord Jesus Christ again in verse 6. So he's very, very Christ-centered. In his whole argument through here, and so God comforts us how? May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting encouragement or consolation and good hope by grace. And so why can I be comforted? Because I have God's love and I have his hope, but also... I have his word and work to involve me in. Comfort your hearts then. And let him therefore establish you, give you that firm standing. Where? In every good work and in every good word. Acts reversed. In every good word and in every good work. And so basically Paul says this. You hang on to the work of the Lord. You hang on to the word of the Lord. You hang on to his hope. You hang on to his love. I promise you. No matter where you are, what you're going through, your heart will be comforted. So, why do we take a stand for the Lord? Well, He chose me. He loved me enough to save me. Secondly, He has destined me for His glory, for His greatness. Thirdly, I have His truth. Fourthly, fourthly, He comforts my heart. Why wouldn't I, with that kind of salvation, take a stand for the Lord? All right? So there's a great word. You'd say, well, man, they ought to be rocking and rolling in that. Well, unfortunately, they were not rocking and rolling in that. They were being deceived by troublemakers. And so in chapter 3, verse 6 through 18, which takes you to the end of the book, you have some of those practical advice in all the Bible about a needful subject. How do you deal with troublemakers? And actually, Paul says, well, depends what kind of troublemaker we're talking about. And that's why you'll see that every one of my five points there starts with the word Sometimes, sometimes, remember, it's sort of like the verse in Proverbs that says, answer a fool in his folly. The same verse then says, don't answer a fool in his folly. So some people have said wrongly, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Oh, no, it doesn't. The Bible is saying, look, you need to exercise a little judgment, a little common sense. There's some fools you just ought to leave alone. You're just going to stir up more mess by messing with them. Just leave them alone. They don't have influence. Nobody really pays attention to them. For the most part, they're kind of harmless. So just leave them alone. But there are other troublemakers. They do have influence. Uh, They do have an agenda. Uh, They themselves are pretty uh, wise and uh, pretty discerning. And furthermore, the issues at stake now are, are, are significant. While the future of your church hangs in the balance with whether or not they have their way. And so at that point in time, you've got to step up to the plate and, you know, play the music and let's dance and see who's left on the floor at the end of the of the ballot. Because you can't ignore people like that. You know, sometimes people say, just ignore it. It'll go away. My experience in life has been 99.99% of the time. That is not true. It doesn't go away. You just might as well go ahead and deal with it graciously, but firmly up front and then move on because it doesn't go away. Furthermore, and this is just a word of wisdom by you preacher guys. If you wait and wait and wait and wait, the issue will move from being principle oriented 
to personality-oriented. And you will lose personality battles. Because what will be the issue is, well, you didn't deal with this here, you didn't deal with this here, you didn't deal with this here. But now you don't like me. You have a personal grudge or vendetta against me. Where if you will deal with the issue up front, immediately, doesn't matter who it is, you keep it on the principal issue level, not the personality level. And this is where you want to engage an issue, a battle, not over here. You'll lose these. These you at least run the chance of winning. So what kind of wisdom does he say? Well, some troublemakers, you just need to avoid them. You withdraw from what he calls the disorderly. You withdraw from what he calls the divisive. And by the way, if you're a Bible marker like me, you'll notice that the word disorderly occurs in verse 6, again in verse 7, and again in verse 11. So he's talking about these people that get into the church. And some have said the word could be translated unruly. Uh, they are uh, those who, actually it's a word that in some military context means they get out of rank. One even said it means to play truant. Uh, you're supposed to be in one place doing one thing, but you're somewhere else basically being a busybody and a troublemaker. So for some troublemakers, he says the first thing you ought to do is you should simply avoid them. So he says in verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of, and there's the full majestic title again, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw... From every brother who walks, and the implication is he's continually walking disorderly and furthermore in what he believes, not according to the teachings of the traditions which he received from us. In other words, if they are both in error in how they are behaving and in what they're believing and they are staying consistent in that. This is not a, just a, a, a momentary lapse. They've kind of entered into a pattern here. And, of course, we understand that you've exercised Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6. Well, then you just need to withdraw from this person. And really, you just kind of say, look, until you get your act together, until you begin to at least somewhat act like Jesus, I really just can't have any fellowship. I'm not going to take you to lunch. I'm not going to go to the ball game with you. Not coming to my house. Now, if you want to talk about dealing with your sin, I'll be there. But as far as just kind of, you know, going as if nothing has changed. No, something very much has changed. And I will not be able to engage you in that intimate, brotherly, sisterly kind of way. You just have to avoid them. Sometimes, secondly, you appeal to them both by example and to everyone that gets to this pattern. Verse seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow the word we get our English word mimic from it, how you ought to mimic us. For we were not disorderly. We were not unruly. We did not play truant among you. In fact, this may have been one of the issues in their context. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free, free of charge. But no, we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Evidently, you had some people that were showing up at dinner time. You had people coming in for a handout. Now, again, let me, this is so practical. I know you know what our policy is here. So, Brother Bill, if I get in trouble, you chastise me and I'll behave myself later. I'll just tell you what we did in our church. We had a church and we had a rule, good rule. We gave nobody money. Nobody. So y'all were stingy. No, 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 no. I didn't finish. We paid house notes. 
We paid doctor bills. We bought medicine. We fixed cars. We paid light bills. We did all sorts of stuff. I mean, all sorts of stuff for people that had legitimate needs. But we would not give money to anybody with one exception. One day, a guy pulled up in a car with uh, his wife and kids. Initially, he sent his wife up to talk to us. And I said, ma'am, I don't mean to be rude, but I need to talk to your husband. So she went back. He got out of the car, came up. And he said, we're driving through. And uh, we need a place to stay. And we need some food and some gas. And we don't have any money. And it was very obvious. Without being judgmental, this man was an alcoholic. There, there was no debate about that. So I said, well, I'll tell you what. Um, we don't give anybody money, but we will put you up at a hotel right down the street. Uh, we'll, we've got a place where you can get this much gas, and we also uh, will provide you a meal at a local restaurant. Well, he said, well, that's very nice of you. I appreciate that. But, you know, wouldn't it just, it'd just be easier on all of you. If you just gave me the money, we'd take care of it. And I said well, again, well, no, no, we, we, we will not give you any money. Well, there were two laymen in my church, sweet men. In fact, they both just did all sorts of volunteer work for us all the time. Both of them at that particular time in their life had been blessed of the Lord. And they got mad at me. I mean, they got flat out, been out of shape with me. And literally came over and all but pushed me out of the way and said, excuse me. And they said, sir, looking at me like I was the lowest scum-sucking dog you've ever seen in your life. They said, sir, excuse his uh, manner. And they pulled out, both of them, as they would. Generous. Generous. Gave this guy between the two of them, this was in 1981, $500. I am behind them, begging them in Jesus' name, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Well, they looked at me again like I was lower than a slug. Gave the guy his money. He grinned, got in the car. You know, they said, now you go in there and tell the, tell the hotel he's coming. Tell the restaurant he'll be coming. Why? I need to tell him. I mean, he's got their money. But you tell him he's coming. And yeah. so, all right, fine. I go in. I make the reservation, knowing full well what was not going to happen. The next morning, about 10 o'clock, the younger of the two, and he wasn't all that young. He was in his mid-30s, came in uh, and knocked on my door and looked around the corner and said, uh, I talked to you for a minute. And I said, mm-hmm. He said, um. That couple last night and those kids, uh, they didn't go to that hotel, did they? And I said, uh, no, sure didn't. And he said, uh, and they didn't go down to the restaurant either, did they? I said, uh, no, didn't do that either. He said, um, we were pretty stupid last night, weren't we? And I said, yeah, sure were. <laughs> I quickly added now. You were being you. You have a big old giant heart. You want to help people, but here's the problem. You didn't help him. I promise you that guy went out and spent the vast majority of that money on alcohol. And some people you can't trust to deal wisely with money. Will we buy them food? Absolutely. Will we put them up? Absolutely. All those things. But we don't give anybody money. Because it's God's money, and you can't trust everyone to deal responsibly with God's money. And so evidently, you had some people here that were just basically uh, praying, P-R-E-Y, on the church. And so he says, look, look at our example. We didn't do this. 
uh, we, we, as ministers of the gospel, he says elsewhere, could have expected you to help finance what we we're doing. But we didn't do this. We worked night and day that we would not be a burden to anyone. Indeed, we didn't take or eat anybody's bread free of charge. Verse nine, not because we don't have authority. Oh, we could have. But to make ourselves, there it is again, an example of how you should follow us for even when we were with you. We commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, of course, we know that that doesn't mean someone who is incapable of working. Again, guy came to see us one day, and uh, he needed his car fixed. He said, well, we'll fix your car. Went across the street, came back, said it's going to be $250. I said, I said we'd fix your car. Um, I said, but. If I remember correctly, you said that you'd be happy to work for it. Well, uh, 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 yeah, I did. I said, I'll tell you what, we're building, and we were, we were building a new education building. I said, there's a lot of trash over there. I mean, a lot of trash. And, you know, it's about 1 o'clock. i tell you what, four hours of labor, $250. I, I think that's a pretty good deal. I, how many of y'all would be willing to work for that? Yeah, I said, sir. You know, I know, I know, yeah. So I said, four hours. No problem. He said, well, uh, uh, um, yeah, that, I tell you what, I need to go back over there and check on one other thing, and, and I'll be right back. And, of course, I'm still waiting to this day for his, I'll be right back. Now, again, was I being unkind to this person? No. He was in perfectly good health. He would have only had to go over and pull some trash for four hours for $250. So, again, if you can work and you don't work, then Paul says, then you don't get to eat either. And that's not being mean. That's being wise and bringing to bear the necessity of responsibility on the part of others. And he says, well, here's why I'm doing this. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but you are busybodies. Just stirring up trouble and running around and accomplishing nothing. And so Paul, at this point, appeals to them. Then thirdly, I pick up the pace. Sometimes you advise them in terms of working quietly, responsibly, diligently. We'll just note this quickly. Verse 12. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ. This comes from the from the top. This comes from God himself that they work and they work in quietness. And they eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, don't you grow weary in doing good. And so he just says, let's just cut to the chase. And if you are able to do this, you do it. And do it without being a troublemaker, a busybody, an idle type of person. And then he comes back and says, but no, sometimes you got to step back and admonish some people. He says in verse 14, but if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. And do not keep company with him. That he may be ashamed. He shows up at dinner time. Da, 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 da. How you doing? Well, we're doing fine. That food I smell on there? Yes, it is. Oh, well, uh, but you're not welcome. Excuse me? You're not welcome. You're causing trouble in the church. You're disorderly. You're a busybody. Whatever it is. And so I love you, but you're not welcome at our table. Now, you say, you'd really, are you doggone right? I'd do that. Whereas if it was somebody in need, if it was a perfect stranger, they'd come and sit at the head of the table for all I care. That'd be fine with me. You treat brothers differently than you treat lost people. 
But you try to bring all people to a position of personal integrity and responsibility. And he just says, look, if this is the way they are, you note them. I mean, you mark them off. You put their name somewhere. And don't you keep company with them that they may be ashamed. But Paul's look at how he, he softens it. He says, now understand, do not count him as an enemy. You admonish him. You, you warn him. You correct him as a brother. And then finally he says, with some you affirm, now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And Paul, after saying some pretty tough things, ends with an affirming word, knowing to follow his guidance, to follow his admonition, is going to bring peace God's presence and God's power. And so there is a good model, a, 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 an apostolic model, a godly biblical model for how it is that we can effectively deal with those that fall in the category, unfortunately, of troublemakers. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we don't uh, have to go out of our way to find troublemakers. Usually they show up pretty clearly and pretty evidently. Lord, we need to understand that it's not loving to let them continue in causing trouble without admonishing them privately first with a view, as Galatians 6, to myself and to the restoration of my brother, my sister. Also, Lord, it is uh, important that if they don't hear me, I go back again with someone else. Again, my goal is not to uh, beat them down or to uh, lay them out, but, Lord, it's to restore them and to convict them of their sin and to see there to be a change in their life. But, Lord, if they persist both in wrong living and wrong believing, then uh, your word says for the sake of the body, sometimes you just have to say that's enough and uh, we're not going to do this anymore. And you even have to sometimes say, you know, until there is a change, uh, we can't fellowship. Uh, We can't uh, have intimate communion with one another. I'm sorry. It hurts me to tell you that you won't be welcomed until there's a change in your life. But, Lord, we don't do that because we're mean. We do that because we love them and because the purity of your church is worthy of our very careful and vigilant attention. So, Lord, Paul softens it as well as strengthens his uh, challenge here. May we learn from this. And, again, be wonderful brothers and sisters to each other because perhaps it may be someday we're on the receiving end of this kind of teaching. And, Lord, I know in my life I would certainly want them to come not to lay me out, but come and confront me because they love me and they want to see me walking in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus. That's our goal. May that be our motive as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, First Timothy. See you then. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. 
We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.